BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I was able to interview Elaine Godfrey, who writes for The Atlantic. Elaine wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled Another Truth About Remote Work, where she described the misconception about the prevalence of working from home and how that explains a lot about confirmation bias in America. Really interesting interview. Take a listen, and please share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Again, I'm Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm really pleased to have Elaine Godfrey here with me. Elaine is a writer for The Atlantic. Elaine, I read your article in The Atlantic, Another Truth About Remote Work, and uh, it describes a misconception about the prevalence of working from home that you had. Uh, apparently, a colleague of yours asked you roughly in March of 21 how many people you thought were, how many Americans you thought were still working from home. And, and you wrote, Elaine, that you were still spending so many hours a day making calls just a few feet from your fridge. By the way, I at least have to go up a flight of steps to the fridge. And since most of your friends uh, were doing that, that 40% was a good guess. And I'll admit, if you had asked me that question, I probably would have said over 50%. So I was even more wrong than you. Tell me um, what prompted you to write the article and what your thoughts are about that that misconception that you and I had, and I'm sure so many other Americans. So what prompted the article was um, my colleague's question first. Um, it, it sort of got me thinking about the whole situation, how magazines like mine and, and like, you know, tons of others were writing about the best kind of sweatpants to wear at at home when you're working remotely, the most ergonomic desk chairs. Um, it just sort of got me thinking about it. Um, I didn't write the piece until a few months later, obviously, um, when I suggested to my editor, let's pull this. Um, let's pull, uh, we, we have a partnership with um, Legere, a polling firm in, in Canada. And, and we said, let's pull this and see what people think. Um, and I'll write about it if other people were, are as wrong as I was and if it's actually a story. Um, and it turned out that people people were as wrong as I was. So, um, yeah, and it's it's something that I'm really interested in, too. It, it gets at this idea that Americans are uh, more divided now than ever. That's a big problem. And I, I talk to my kids about it weekly. We have become such a polarized society. Do you think that we are just destined to live in our own bubbles shaped by our communities as great as they may be. The social media that is just all over the place now in so many polarizing ways, the media itself. Do you think that that's our destiny? Do you think people want to change that? And if people want to change that, do you think it's even fixable at this point? That's a big question. I think it is not an inevitable that we are so divided. I think it is intuitive. It does make sense to me that uh, we base our assumptions on the people that surround us and 
the people that we live with, the towns that we live in. Um, I mean, that makes sense to me, but uh, it doesn't seem uh, inevitable given that we have all the ability in the world to uh, read stories about other people, to connect with other people on, now that we have the internet and, and, and you know, uh, social media that allows us to see what other people are thinking anywhere in the country, in the world, in, in enclaves that are not our own. Um, I think one way, I, I, I do think, yes, people do want to fix this. And I think it is a job, it is the job of journalists in part to try to fix this, to try to help people understand each other. I, I really see that as my role um, in journalism, not so much to, you know, break political news, but to tell people about other people um, and tell people's stories. And I think if you make a point to hire journalists with that kind of curiosity and you make a point to have you know, news organizations, whether it's a magazine like mine or a newspaper or, a, you know, a radio, whatever, um, you hire people with that curiosity and from different backgrounds. I think um, people who are from, you know, flyover states like Iowa, which is where I'm from, um, you know, we can tell stories that are um, more intimate because we're from there and, and that are different than what you know, my, my colleague who is from New Jersey, might the story that they might care about or that they might write. I think um, geographic diversity, class diversity, obviously racial diversity is all really important in coverage, uh, in, in journalism um, for that reason, to help us understand each other. So you mentioned class diversity. And in the article, you talk about how 40 to 50 years ago, when neighborhoods and churches and social organizations were, they, they might have been less racially diverse, but they certainly were more soci socioeconomically diverse. So there was a lot of cross-class mixing, which I think, and it seems your article also says, is missing today. I think that's very unfortunate. Do you think that that, too, is something, whether using the social media tools that really can be used for so many positive things or other means? Do you think that that can be fixed uh, in today's divided society? That's tough because we tend to live and work with people of our same, I don't know, class tier or, or, or work type. Um, I think, um, and, and gravitate to people with the experience, the, the, the growing up experience that we had, you know? Um, so I think it is possible. Um, but I think as, especially as income inequality gets worse as our, um, you know, as we separate ourselves by occupation in cities versus rural areas, um, it, it, it's really hard to introduce yourself to people of other, you know, economic, classes, economic categories. Um, I don't know if it's inevitable, inevitable. Uh, and I don't know how you fix it. I think, um, that's been a question I've asked myself a lot because, uh, I am not from a wealthy background. I'm from a, you know, blue collar background in Iowa. Most of my friends still, most of my, my, my high school friends still live in Iowa. Um, a lot of my college friends, I went to college in Iowa too. They live in Iowa. A lot of them have working class jobs or, you know, 
not super well-paying jobs. A lot of them did not uh, get to work from home at all throughout the pandemic. And But here in D.C., uh, where I've lived for about five years, all of my friends work from home. Um, all of my friends are in these sort of, you know, white collar kind of jobs. Um, and it's a, it's a strange sort of balancing act to try to um, figure out how to, how to stay connected with people of all, all kinds. I don't, I don't know how you, um, how we solve this problem. I think um, Bill Bishop, who wrote the, the book, The Big Sort in 2004, um, he wrote about it um, a, a, as though it's a, it's a choice that we are, we're, we're clustering based on our politics and our lifestyle. And I think that that's true. Um, and so if it's a choice, I guess I don't know how you reverse it. If, if people are, um, are, are, are choosing to, to live in certain places because of that, um, then I don't know how you change that. So one of the, one of the ways I could suggest, and by no means am I an expert on this, but is the word that you used in the answer to the previous question, which is curiosity, right? One of the things I do try to teach my kids is yes, we're raising you a certain way in a certain neighborhood with certain, you know, rules and things like that, but you have to be curious about the outside world. You should be curious about everybody you meet, whether in New Jersey or in Iowa or in Saudi Arabia, it doesn't matter. And at the end of your article, you quote the sociologist Arlie Hochschild, who believes that mutual understanding is still possible between Americans. And she offers advice for people like you, Elaine, and of course me and my kids and everybody else, where she says, basically, ask yourself the question, why didn't I know that? So I think that's such an important question. Your word curiosity is so important. How do we get, if you can even answer this question, how do we get people to be more curious? How do we, uh, what do I tell my podcast listeners? What do you tell your readers about trying to get them to understand how important it is for them to understand how others live, how others think, how others act, why they do all those things? So I think as a, you know, professional communicator, and, and you are too, I think um, coming to conversations like this one and to articles uh, and stories without judgment, just letting people tell you their story and telling their story, um, sharing their story with others uh, in a judgment-free way, in a way that shows, oh, here's a human being and here's their, you know, life journey. Here's why they think the way that they do. Um, I, I think that's the only way to encourage curiosity and sort of open-mindedness um, among people is to encourage everyone to see everyone else as human and not rush to judgment. And um, I, I think a big part of that you learn as a kid, um, you, you learn that in school. Um, I, I think, you know, encouraging your kids to have as many experiences when they're young is, is great to, to learn that not everyone is like them. And, and, um, to sort of burst out of their their bubble as early as possible and as often. Like studying abroad, it's it's there have been so many studies on study abroad and how it can really like open up a person's mind. Um, and and it's such a small thing too. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, opportunities like that. Um, so I guess education, telling your kids um, about being curious and and giving them the chance to to be curious and to learn things about other people. Um, and then just approaching every conversation, every story you write um, with 
empathy and and kindness instead of judgment. That's that's sort of my my personal look uh, look at it. I think that's great. Look, empathy and kindness should be almost the first two lessons we teach our kids all together. But you said something else that I I think is great, which is here's a human being, right? That is the another super important lesson. Stop sort of filtering people through, oh, that person is X or Y or Z, when you know nothing about them. Talk to them, listen to them, read about them. And ironically, and you say this in your article too, the social networks in theory should help us burst out of our social bubbles, but instead they've tended to reinforce them. Have you been able to use social media, uh, whether it's Facebook, which I know has been under uh, a harsh spotlight recently, but really all of these social media channels can be such amazing tools rather than reinforcing some of the things that they've been doing. But have you been so, have you been successful in using social media to interact with the audience and meet others from different, different backgrounds and connect others from different backgrounds? Yeah, I think social media and especially um, Twitter for me uh, it can be really toxic. People can be really mean. Um, I tend to post stories that I write and then I mute them immediately so that I can't see what people say about them because it, sometimes it just really hurts my feelings and I don't want to. I don't want to read that. Um, I, I do think that in reporting, if I find someone saying something nasty on Facebook or Twitter, I I tend to think that they are not like that in real life. Um, based on my own, um, you know, I've, I've interviewed so many people that I've found on social media and, and often I found them because they're saying, you know, nasty things or, or controversial things or things that shock me. Um, and when I ask them for an interview, I find out, oh, hey, uh, you're a nice person, actually, or, or oh, hey, we were both from Iowa, surprisingly enough. Um, and I, I, or, you know, my mom, I had that recently. Oh, wait, you know, my mother. <laughs> um, I think like I, you just have to take that second step on social media of, of saying, okay, why is this person coming at me like that? What, what are they upset about? Why is this person, um, so angry or so, you know, pro, uh, why is the, why does this person not understand X, Y, Z thing? I think that just taking the time to talk to that, talk to them, um, has been helpful for me. Uh, but I don't think everyone uses social media that way. Often you just use it to sort of reaffirm the, the positions that you already have. But I think, um, which can be tempting. It's nice to have people say, you know, uh, rah, rah, like I agree with you. Um, but I, I think if you are a curious person, you want to know why people disagree with you. Um, I think, I guess I think that's what social media can be, can be good for. Also great points. And it reminds me, you know, when I was in the white house, I used to have to speak in front of audiences that many, very often were either anti-Trump or anti our policies in the middle East. And there are a couple of quotes that, always made me remember why I did what I did. So there was a woman from the Middle East who came up to me after one of my speeches and said, you know, Jason, I really disagree with all of your policies. I wish you would do something different, but your honesty was refreshing. And we ended up having a cup of coffee and we we came from worlds apart in so many ways, but we became friends and we have a respectful dialogue, a healthy, respectful dialogue. And I wish I could 
sort of bottle the many conversations that I had over the, those three years in the White House, some of which were really difficult, but still almost always. I can think of maybe two conversations where somebody attacked me, I thought, unfairly. Um, uh, and other than that, those who disagreed with me, we were really able to get to know each other, get to understand the other person's perspective, still likely leaving the table more uh, firm or comfortable with our positions, but at least hearing the other person. And I think it's terribly lacking in, in today's society. I think that's right. I, I was, I was just thinking this. Um, I've had people who have criticized stories I've written in the past in, you know, for, for fair reasons, for reasons that I think are, I don't know, reasonable. Um, and, and that criticism, um, uh, it hits the hardest because you know, you know, it, it, it was fair. And, and when those same people say, I disagree, but I think you made your point well, or I disagree, but it was very well written. And, you know, you, you told a story that I thought that I learned from, um, th that means the most to me when I, when I think that I've, I've opened someone's mind a little bit to, to another experience or another point of view. Going back to the theme of your, of your story in terms of um, how many people didn't have the ability to work remotely. And, and obviously there are those who are really the heroes of the pandemic, the healthcare community, the transportation community, both getting people around and moving boxes, the supermarket employees. So many people just gave up so much and put their own lives and the lives of their family at risk. But um, I think we've now sort of settled on some people have figured out that they don't necessarily need to be in the office anymore or part of the time. Do you think that employers who offer remote work will have an easier time attracting talent than those who say, okay, it's over. Let's everybody get back to the office now. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I mean, for my own job, I'm a journalist. I travel often anyway. It's really not important for me to be in the office. Um, and I think this, uh, this will for sure shift how journalism works. I think that we will certainly hire more remote reporters now. I mean, if we don't, shame on us as a, as a, uh, uh, an industry. I think that, um, you know, the New York Times just announced it's hiring a bunch of new Midwest reporters who can work remotely. Um, I think, I think lots of companies should take advantage of this, get people from anywhere to do this work. We don't need to be concentrated in, in cities um, where rent is higher and, and, uh, and cost of living is just generally higher. Um, we can stay spread out. I, I think it's, this is a great development. I don't think it's good for everyone, right? Because, you know, nurses can't work remotely. Um, bartenders can't work remotely. I think, um, I think this, this benefits a, a select group of people. Um, and that's good. But, but I do think we need to remember that um, even as these developments are happening for people like me and for, for industries like mine, um, we're, we're still a small fraction of the people who uh, of the American workforce. I mean, there are so many people who did not get to work from home during the pandemic. My own parents worked from home for like a few months, I think. And it was a huge hubbub because <laughs> their offices are just very old school and have no idea how to do that. Um, and now they're back in person. Those bosses were like, 
you know, it's over, we're done, everyone come back in person, that was horrible. Um, and so I, I, I do think it's also a generational thing. You know, my, my parents do not like working at home, whereas I love it. I love being able to, you know, sit in my, sit in my jammies and work. So there's a new term now that I keep hearing, the great resignation. And, and everywhere I go, everyone I speak to, they're talking about just tremendous staffing shortages. I, I was talking to an old friend of mine who's building a few buildings, and he can't finish them on time, even though they're mostly sold out because every one of the trades, the electrician, the plumbing, and all that are losing their workers. And that's just one example. Hoteliers can't find the staff. Uh, everyone is um, having challenges. What do you think is going to happen with the labor market and the pent-up demand for workers? That's a great question. I do not know. I think that th this is something that I really don't understand. I, I want to know more. I, like, I want to understand it better, but I'm having a really hard time figuring out what's going on. I think, I think that companies will have to offer better pay, better benefits to employees to get them to come back. But I also, I also don't tend to buy the the excuse that it's, um, you know, pe that the government has given people, you know, money through, through pandemic relief. And that's why everyone's staying home. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, so I don't know, I don't fully understand it. Um, but I, I think it is certainly a time where American workers recognize, oh, we can, uh, we can get more from employers, we can make more money, we can demand better working conditions, better benefits. Um, and I, I hope that that's a, a, a product of all of this is that um, workers, you know, come out with the, the longer end of the stick in the end. And what about workers quality of life? So you mentioned your parents didn't like working at home necessarily, I happen to love it. I think I do work harder. I certainly work longer hours, but I think I get to control my hours. During my long career pre-COVID, I can't even remember dinners with my kids during the week. We have a beautiful Shabbat dinner and over Shabbat and Sunday. But during the week, I was always in the office working through dinner. Whereas throughout COVID, I would say 90 to 95% of the time, I'm able to have a proper sit-down dinner with my wife and kids, which is amazing. And I would trade that for being up late at night on my computer, continuing my job. Do you think worker, those who work from home work harder, but the quality of life is better? Or do you think that they're getting tired as well? I think we are all getting very tired. Um, I know that I, I feel like I'm burnout in a way that never really happened when I went to the office. Um, but I think that's more a product of not, you know, not being able to travel internationally or go on, on any kind of fun trips in for a very long time. Um, I, I otherwise think that my my work from home has been really great for me. Um, it's shown me I actually work better late at night and very early in the morning. Um, I, I, I like taking a break during the day and walking the dog and not having to sort of frantically grab lunch from Sweet Green a few blocks away and run back home or back to work. Um, I have I have found, yes, that I am more productive. I control my own hours. I do think my quality of life is better. Um, I get to see my boyfriend who works from home. Um, I get to hang out with my dog, my, my pandemic puppy <laughs> that I got. Um, so I do think it's great. I mean, I, I found myself dreading returning to the office, which we will, we will be doing probably in the next like three or four months. Um, 
I, I hope we have a hybrid system because I, I don't know if I can do it full time again now that I've I've known this luxury. Um, but I, I think it, it, it's just different for everyone, right? Like my dad hates it. He hates working alone in his office at home. He doesn't get to see any of his friends. Um, he's so used to that, you know, going home or, or um, he, he's so used to going in at a certain time, having lunch with his friends, coming home at five, seeing my mom. Like it's, uh, I think it's too ingrained in some people. Um, they, they can't quite adjust, but um, for me, it's been great. Yeah. Another article you wrote, and this one really touched me. I lost my father in early September. He died at the age of 92. You wrote an article entitled The Year of Postponed Grief, where you described how it was 16 months after your grandmother died that your family was finally able to gather together to bury her. It was a great photo, by the way, of your grandmother from 1944 as a cadet nurse. Really striking photo, I thought. And you described how you laughed at the funeral at the pastor's awkward jokes and how you sang along as your dad played a hymn and that while you all didn't sound good, you're sure your grandmother would have liked it. Can you take us back to this time and remind everybody how the virus just disrupted everything, including, as you say, the oldest ritual and how your family managed to get through that? Yeah, my grandmother died in April of 2020. Um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I obviously couldn't go home to see my my parents. Um, my dad couldn't be with her in the hospital while she while she died. I think she was in the hospital for a few days. Um, no one could. And and um it just made it so much worse. It made it so much more cold and less human and more it was just it was hard to register that she was gone because we didn't get to do the normal crying together. I didn't get to hug my dad and tell him I was sorry. I mean, you know, FaceTime just isn't the same. And I think, you know, at that time I wrote a story about nursing homes because my grandma had died in a, in a nursing home. Um, and that was sort of my outlet. I think at the time was, okay, I'll write about it. I'll, I'll talk to as many people as I can and I'll spend a lot of time thinking about thinking about her and, and I don't know, potentially honoring her this way um, because I had nothing else to do with my hands. Um, I think that's how I felt. Uh, and, and that lasted for a long time. And, you know, eventually we had the funeral um, and, and it, it just felt like a big sigh of relief because we were finally able to sort of go through the motions, look through all these old photo albums of hers um, read all these old like report cards of my dad's that she'd saved and all be together and sort of make fun of each other and do this family thing that we hadn't done in so long. I think there is just this, there's just no replacement for being together. And I think that's what the, the pandemic has really shown us. Um, and it's, it's, it's made me at least, you know, much, much more grateful for that in-person time. Thanks for sharing the personal story. Out of curiosity, were the report cards revealing? <laughs> yeah, my dad was a huge nerd his whole <laughs> life. I think that's I think that's mostly what they revealed. I better go up to the attic and if I have any report cards up there, I'll shred them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elaine Godfrey, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing uh, your your stories. Thanks for sharing your insight on this uh, 
So these are new topics, right, in so many different ways. So I appreciate the fact that you wrote the article and your and your personal article as well. And thanks for, for the time today. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Lots to think about from this interview with Elaine Godfrey, who writes for The Atlantic, the importance of being curious, the human-to-human connection, taking the time to respectfully dialogue with others and learn more about others. thought it was a really interesting interview. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you found this podcast informative, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever your podcasts can be heard. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.